Let's all go down the tram. Let's all go down the tram. I'll be leader, you come up behind. Come with me and see what we can find. Let's all go down the tram. Oh, what a happy land. That's the place for fun and noise All among the girls and boys So let's all go down the strand Let's all go down the strand Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast In this episode I'm joined by Nick Amies Author, journalist, cultural commentator and all-round good egg We discussed the debut album by Suede Suede, its impact on us, on the country on the music scene, and the things that elevate Suede above labels like Britpop to being one of the great British bands of all time. You can find me, as ever, on Twitter, at MildMannerMax. You can read my ramblings over on the website, www.themildmanneredarmy.com. And if you're so inclined, you can now support the site and the podcasts from as little as $1 a month by heading over to Patreon and becoming a pledger there. Full details are pinned to my Twitter page. Thanks to all those of you who have already done so, and thanks to you for listening tonight. So without further ado, here's Suede. So this, this evening, this morning, depending on where listeners are, we are going to turn our attention, uh, after having discussed at some length uh, Blur's Modern Life is Rubbish, we're going to turn our attention to an album that I think you and I, and a band that you and I both have a real uh, love for and a real soft yeah. spot for, and that well, is the, the mighty uh, Suede. And specifically, we're going to look at that, that debut album, I think. But do you maybe want to start us off by maybe telling me where you were, who you were when Suede first entered your consciousness? Oh, yeah. Um, like I said in the previous conversation we had about Modern Life is Rubbish, it was towards the tail end, well, not even the tail end, I think uh, Manchester had pretty much died a death then. And the thing which we were we were going through at the time were, was um, kind of hanging on to anything which may have been positive in British guitar music at that time. So that would probably be, um, well, that could be like Ride, Chapter House, Pale Saints, that kind of shoegazing scene at the time. Thank you. 
course, grunge came in at that point as well. So there was a real kind of for me, yeah, it was I'd just come out of Manchester and was holding tight to these bands. I was a big fan of Ride and Chapter House and the others. And grunge swept in, but I was always looking and hoping for something more substantial. So something like a real revival could be built on, but you couldn't really pin your hopes on anything. You know, like a band like Thousand Yard Stare, you know, they weren't no one like that was going to be capable of kicking Nirvana out of the country at that time. And no dis- disrespect meant because they have a couple of, at least a couple of decent of tunes. But you needed the full package. And uh, when Sway's debut came out, I think it had that. And it had the bravery and the extravagance and, and controversy as well, I suppose. I mean, manufactured as it may have been to really make an impact. And those songs on that debut album have something to say and uh, they're not comfortable stories to hear. And at that time, there wasn't really anything which was going on at that point which sounded like that. Nothing out there sounded like that at the time. And to be honest, there's been nothing really that sounded like that since. Artists, they're often compared to other artists. And you've been called the new Bowie or the new Morrissey. Isn't it quite tiring to always be compared? Yeah, it's very boring because it's uh, it's very much a symptom of, of the 1990s where everything is very reflective and um, people have to be seen in, in terms of other people. It is tiresome being compared to other people, but it's the sort of thing that happens um, early on in people's careers before people really know of any depth. So how would you describe your music? Um... Emotional, I think. And, of course, on some of the songs, the influences were clear, so they, they, they definitely had their their music attached to some of the British rock history. But um, at the time when British music was struggling to get out from under the weight of this American invasion, it's remarkable that a band like Suede really led that way to the light because, you know, they were the antithesis of what was going on. And I think that's what made them the people's champions at the time. To me, it was a bit risky, wasn't it? I mean, it was like, you know, you had these brash Americans flashing about and then these kind of slightly effect guys coming in, painting themselves and talking about, well, not directly, but anal sex and confused sexuality and different themes in songs which we hadn't heard from for a long time. So that, for me... When I heard that, it was like, well, okay, this is, you know, this is very different. And I'm, be- I'm behind this because this is like a, a British thing. And uh, But on the other side, there was like, yeah, I'm not, sure, I'm not entirely sure what it is, if there's anything there quite strong enough for me to get on board big time, which did come, but later. We'll get to that. What about you? Well, I, I think I have a slightly confused timeline when it comes to Suede and, and that debut album. I, I have a, I've, I've written a little bit about this on, on some of the things on the blog. I, I remember going to see Morrissey in 1991 on, the, on his Kill Uncle tour. Right. You know, he'd come back after this kind of period of inactivity with this slightly 
lightweight album. It's a lovely album with hindsight, but I can remember meeting a chap outside of the Caird Hall in Dundee called Stan, David Stan Stanbrook. He was from East Grinstead. Wow. And um, he had a girlfriend, this American girl, who was very sort of gothic, um, you know, I mean, completely, you know, kind of back-combed hair. And she was just very peculiar. Her name was Heather. But, but anyway, I, I can remember being in my wow. bedroom, my, my back bedroom in, in my little mum and dad's little house in Kirkcaldy. And Heather had a flyer for a fan club gig or something that she'd gone to that involved this band Suede. And it had the artwork for the Drowners on it. So the Drowners must have come out. And then I, I can remember as well recording off of, uh, I guess, the evening session or something, a live show from somewhere in Newcastle. and then pouring over it for days afterwards, writing down the lyrics to the, the Drowners and Moving and you know, Metal Mickey and trying to make yeah. sense of this, yeah, yeah, yeah. this this world. It was it was so peculiar. Um, and then like you, I was definitely looking for something. I mean, it's it's one of those cliches, isn't it? You know, well, it's not. it wasn't a cliche when Morrissey first said it, but, you know, you know, the music they constantly play says nothing to me about my life. And yeah. that, that, that was very much how I felt about that whole grunge thing and yet when suede came along i as this very sort of innocent in very many ways mormon boy from a coastal town in fife i had no concept of what they were talking about the drugs references the sexual references none of it but i was utterly mesmerized by the 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 seemingly all pervasive and all encompassing Mm. sense of glamour and the erotic and deviance that surrounded mm. the, the, oh, yeah. the band. You know, it seemed very, very dangerous and very thrilling. And of course, the artwork for the Drowners simply compounds all of that. Um, and, and yeah, like you, I, I just fell hook, line and sinker for it. I, I just loved it. And it was interesting, you said, you know, you were looking for something more substantial. And yet, is there anything less substantial than the sight of Brett Anderson in a, a lace blouse? You know, yeah. beating, no, that's beating a good his buttocks. You know, and and yet they were <laughs> muscular as a, as a live band and oh, yeah. on on record that the, yeah. there was a real power. So yeah, you know, I, I guess not two dissimilar stories really. Both of us looking for something, yeah. um, but I, th- I think you're right, Nick. It's it's odd that they would be the band. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think um, for me, Metal Mickey was the start. Boy George, excellent as always. Ten new entries this week on the chart. This is one of them at number 17. Welcome, singing live on TOTP, Suede.
guitar and pretty much every riff Bernard Butler laid down for Suede on the debut and then Dogman Star as well. I mm. would say that's as iconic as anything Johnny Marr did with the Smiths and uh, I mean what I loved about those early Suede releases were those intros. I remember listening to those those, those first singles and, uh, and Mickey has a great one Animal Nitrate too and they were these mm. short Kind of come here, the little winks, just teasing. But for me, they kind of, they, they kind of epitomise that era of suede. It's all it all fits so well with everything about them. You know, each start of the, you know, the rockier songs is like that promise of, you know, tantalisingly long foreplay, but then it's straight into the rough, fast sex. You know, <laughs> and you may you may have got into it wanting some kind of sensual love making, but by the end you're actually much more satisfied with the quick hard shag, which is what they were, which which the faster songs were actually like. You know, it's just like oh, they're building it up and then bang, suddenly you're in, and you say, like, okay, that's actually kind of what I was after in the end anyway. So, <laughs> but, well, know, they're, they're... There you there you have it, listeners. A terrifying glimpse into the life of <laughs> Mrs. Amy's. Uh, <laughs> that's wonderful. But yeah. it's, it's true. You, you, you can't get away from it, Nick. You can't <laughs> separate the sex and the sexuality from the music. No, you can't. You know, it, 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 it ran right through them. And I, I guess a similar thing went on with, and I, here we have to invoke the B word, a similar thing on, went on with Bowie, I guess, right? Yeah. That, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. Bowie also laced it. And, and I was aware of Bowie, obviously, th- through my parents. But I had no idea who Jean Genet was. You know, I, I thought Jean Genie was just, you know, a nice kind of rhyme, you know, a kind of play yeah. on words almost. Yeah, I, I had yeah. no understanding of who Jean Genet was and, you know, why he is actually a very provocative figure to to drop into a pop song, you know, that's going to hit the charts. I, I, I didn't understand the androgyny of it all. I didn't get it. And I didn't really get it when I first stumbled across Suede. I would have been, what, so it's 92... Oh my goodness! This this really will give you a glimpse into the life of a young Mormon teenager. I mean, I was sort of eighteen, <laughs> and still, you know, even at that point, no, you know that that was not a world I was familiar with. You know, a a, a, a cheeky snog on the sofa with Anna Campbell after a church disco, um, with her mum and dad you hanging about boy. outside the door. Well, <laughs> yes, yes, I, I'd I'd like to apologise to uh, all, all Mormons <laughs> everywhere, uh, but but you know, really and truly. It's Swede. Oh, this is going to sound ridiculous, I think. But I, th- I think Swede awoke something. I, I, yeah. I, I think through. It's, it, I think you're right. That those musical licks and riffs, they are come hither, kind of looks and nods and glances, and and the, the, there was a kind of sexual energy about them. And then when I went to see them on that that first UK tour, yeah. when they came to Scotland, I, mean, I can remember being. Almost driven by some unseen hand, shoved by it to to clamber up on stage and embrace a, a by then half naked Brett Anderson and remove my own shirt and drape it over <laughs> his shoulders after the crowd had removed his. Did you? Um, Did that happen? Did that happen? That actually happened. Yeah, oh, at, nice. at the venue in oh. Edinburgh, this tiny little cavern of a of a, a live venue. Wonderful. And, Wonderful and they stuff. they came on after the auteurs who nobody yeah. really paid any attention to, which I'm sure probably suited Luke Keynes down to the ground. He, he doesn't strike me as a man who cares whether people pay attention or not. Yeah. 
And I had on, I wrote about this the other day, I, I had on a pair of Levi's and a pair of Dr. Martin boots. I may well have adorned those Dr. Martin boots with some kind of name of a band and Tipex on the heel or something. And I had a Morrissey t-shirt underneath a green velour woman's blouse. Wow. And, and, and when Brett, <laughs> wow indeed, uh, <laughs> there you go, a terrifying <laughs> glimpse into the life of Mrs. Max. Uh, <laughs> There's only when, one wardrobe when... at home then. <laughs> She's a lucky lady. <laughs> and when uh, Brett Anderson came on in this sort of lacy woman's blouse and oh, he yeah. had it kind of stripped from his body, genuinely, I stepped up the stage at that point was only like a step or two above the audience. It wasn't a big venue. And I, I stepped up and embraced him and took my shirt off and wrapped it around his shoulders and it lasted about 30 seconds before it too was you know, devoured by the audience. Um, and I can remember getting the train home after that and thinking, I don't know what happened. But I really liked it. I really, really liked it. It felt really dangerous and thrilling. Excellent. So there wasn't like, oh, cover yourself up, man. Take my shirt. It's here. Well, that's it. That that should have been what I was thinking. I, you know, I, I should have been clutching my uh, Mormon equivalent of some rosary beads to my chest, you know, and sort of gasping. But I, I wasn't feeling that. I was feeling like this is really, this is really naughty. And I, I would quite like to be a part of this. Um, yeah, just, gosh, I've come over. I'm blushing here. I feel, <laughs> I feel like we're on the verge of, yeah, I feel like we're on the verge of some terrible uh, confession or possibly some glorious confession. Uh, we'll leave that for another episode. Let's let's turn our attention then, given that we're talking a lot about sex, let's, let's turn our attention to that um, cover art for this yes. debut album. I'm, I'm clutching a, a copy of the album in my in my hands right now on vinyl. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it, I, I came late to this party. I didn't realise until maybe five or six years ago what, what the image actually is. You know, I mean, it looks like a boy and a girl kissing on, on the front of this, or possibly two boys, or possibly two girls. It's all yeah. very androgynous. Very androgynous, yeah. But of course, the big reveal is that one of these women is actually in a wheelchair you know the, yeah. the full photograph shows you that that's a very bold thing to do as well i think yeah and i wonder how many people at the time actually looked further into it and found that out because it, that wasn't at a time where that information was readily available so maybe that you're not the only one where that came mm. out for me i think it was even within the last couple of years i even found out about that and and again I kind of got that same like, ooh, kind of shock swayed, or oh, you've done it again, you naughty boys. And uh, from 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 that image again, from like a seeing more of it, I got an even more evocative feeling and provocative feeling from it as well. I remember seeing, I remember going to buy it and um, feeling, I wouldn't say 
uh, self-conscious, but there was there was definitely something. Uh, I felt that there needed to be a bit of bravery about buying it because not only is it from the way it looked, but by then there was a lot in the press and then there was a lot in the music. And by that time, there'd been a few releases. People knew that Suede were a little bit like, there was something a bit risque about it. And if you then bought it, what's that saying about you? And at that time, there's not something quite as light or open as it could be now. You know, you would be like, yeah, what's he got there? Suede, or he's a, he's a puff or all this, you know, all these, these stereotypes may have been thought of by some people, but. I I think you're right. I I think people, people, the age that we were then now. Yeah. That sounds like a Robbie Williams lyric, but people our age now then, today, I don't know. They, 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 I, th- I think it's difficult for them to imagine that that actually, even in 92, 93, 94, yeah. was not an uncommon thing. You know, that kind of very casual homophobia, the use of language, of language yeah, and words sure, like, sure, sure. you know, that, that, was, that was there all the time. You know, it's, it's like that, that that scene in Quadrophenia, right? When when Jimmy's sitting watching television and his dad's talking about, you know, yeah. his geezers on top of the pots of long hair and he describes them using exactly that language. Nothing yeah. particularly changed up until the 90s. You know, the, the, no, there has no, been no. a genuine revolution in language um, and, and in gay rights. And I think actually, for all the controversy that came later on when Brett made those infamous remarks about being a, a bisexual man who'd never had a homosexual experience. Well, I know that you've all been waiting muted breath, probably unable to leave for work because I'm back on the bed for a second helping of rocks, Mr. Sex. It is Swade, Brett Anderson. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Just in case you'd forgotten who you um, were since last time. Now tell me, um, do you have <clears> a girlfriend <throat> at the moment? I might do. What's it to you? I'm just interested, showing uh, friendly curiosity now I've just met you. Yeah, what of it? What are you going to do about it? I'm going to hit her. <laughs> when I see her to a party, I'm going to slap her. Yeah, I'd actually, yeah. And what's she like? What sort of girls do you like? I like, um, oh, I couldn't go into it actually. I might get a bit, I might, go a bit I might get a bit sordid. Really? Yeah. What, you don't like girls who bottle plums? Who <laughs> bottle plums? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. The truth of the matter was that their flirtations with some of these images, words, language, um, I, th- I think it definitely helped in terms of, you know, pushing the the gay rights agenda of making, you know, white heterosexual indie boys a little bit more, you know, kind of comfortable around that. Am I, am I yeah. pushing it too far? Oh, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say you're pushing it too far. I would definitely say that it it became part of the debate and even if it wasn't talked about it was definitely like something which was then reported on and hinted at more than just kind of like you know there's insinuations here and there um it was it was part of the image it was part of the lyrical content it was part of everything around the band i think and that because they were so embraced at the time as saying, okay, this is our main hope for getting rid of this American invasion. This is, you know, maybe the start of something which is going to be a resurgence of British guitar music. You know, 
look at the people who have come before, look at the David Bowies, look at the Mark Bolands, look at the Morrisseys, you know, they're, you know, then there is something going through our history, our musical history, where there's things have been accepted, which may now be spoken of in hushed tones in the late 80s, early 90s, but they're, they're, they're part of our culture and part of our musical culture. And, you know, in former times, they didn't really prove to be that detrimental to the music by in public. Of course, there was outcry for like, oh, Bowie doing this, blah, blah, doing that. And of course, there would always be that. But that was always part of, you know, the rock and roll myth. I, I think when, when Suede started to do that, I think it wasn't just a building of an image. I think there was also messages getting out there. And I think that's something which I think we touched upon very early on in this conversation when I said that there were stories within their songs which were not comfortable stories to hear. And if you listen closely enough, they're not really... They're great songs and they're great rock songs and pop songs, but if you kind of get into the subject matters and the themes they they can be uncomfortable if you investigate a little further and i think at the time they were they were songs about life in britain and the same in the same way that the smiths had in the mid 80s that they were addressing the confused feelings of the young people who had been forgotten and who were on the fringes of society and uh, i have to disagree i don't normally but I have to disagree with what disagree with what Noel Gallagher said. I think in '94 when he said that suede meant nothing to kids sitting in council flats in Glasgow. I think maybe when the tide had already turned and Britpop had started coming in and people had the gumption to get going again after grunge had faded, there may be different, more I don't know, belligerent things needed to be said. But two years before Noel said that, songs like. So young, pantomime horse, sleeping pills, even, you know, they talk to the disaffected youth of Britain in much the same way as the Smiths had, you know. And uh, so I think my opinion is that Suede is a very important album in that way and a very important pre Britpop album as it snapped us back into thinking about what our condition was and not, you know, what society was like. But not just what was happening to you, the listener, but what was happening to the boy or girl next door. And that, I think, was a basis on what the swaggering kind of togetherness and collective restored pride which flowed through Britpop was built on. You know, it was more, you know, you started thinking a bit more about everyone else, even though it was a bit, you know, it, it was a bit shallow at that point. It was a bit like, we're all together, let you know, you and I, we're going to live forever. But back then, you know, it's like, you start thinking more out of the box, you know. I have problems, maybe they have problems. Maybe those problems are these problems. And these problems are being addressed by this band, which is called Suede, and on this album, Suede. So, yeah, for me, that is something which, when I heard those lyrics, I was a bit like, whoa, okay, you're talking about stuff which no one talks publicly about, but... You know, there are people who are dealing with this and and maybe, not maybe, I'm sure that was important and is important. And uh, I think that's what makes, apart from the fact that they're great 
tunes and great it's great music it makes that debut album very very important to a lot of people and in the context of British music in general yeah I, I, I agree I agree entirely and um, I, th- I think that that points to you know a, a lot is made or certainly a lot was made but back in those early days about Bernard Butler being this kind of songwriting genius, which which I would agree with, of course. Um, and there was a slightly sniffier tone, I think, taken about um, Brett. You know, there would be jokes about, you know, his repetitious use of certain, you know, words, you know, diesel and what have you, and, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, high-rise buildings, whatever it might have been, you know, these kind of uh, things, these allusions and metaphors that he used time and time again. But you see, I, I think... That history looks much more kindly on on Brett Anderson as a lyricist, actually, because now you can see that actually these are themes that, that run through his work. He is an auteur, really, in the world of pop music. You know, just in the same way that you know, with a Hitchcock film, you know, you can spot that when there's a bird, somebody's going to die or something bad is going to happen. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock and I would like to tell you about my forthcoming lecture. It is about the birds and their age-long relationship with man. It will be seen in theatres like this across the country. In my lecture I hope to make you all aware of our good friends the birds. You know these themes that run through his work, these signatures and I think it's the same thing with Brett Anderson. I think even from those earliest records he had a, a, a vision in mind, an idea and I think it's shaped by that very peculiar, uh, but I think very loving, uh, certainly from reading his, his autobiography, upbringing yeah. that he had. But it was certainly a very eccentric background that he came from and a, a background that would have been completely different to all of his peers. You know, he had this very kind of yeah, peculiar, I think is the only word I can, I can think of to describe mm. it. You know, this very eccentric father, this very artistic mother, and yeah. there he is living yeah. in this nowhere town, and yet in the middle of that nowhere town, there is high art being foisted upon him. I, I, I see him as one of the... I, I, I think he, he borders on being a, a bona fide intellectual. Dirt poor, existing in penury in a cheap council house. But my parents filled it with trappings more akin to the lives of upper middle class Hampstead intellectuals. Mum's paintings were everywhere. She had decorated the whole place with strong colours, midnight blues, William Morris wallpapers and her own rich velvet homemade curtains in the windows. And everywhere, of course, was the deafening torrent of my father's classical music. Well, yeah. You know, certainly when you compare him to his peers, you know, he, he I think, is, is better read and more thoughtful and more intelligent than uh, Morrissey. I think Morrissey has a much narrower frame of reference, for example. I think mm-hmm. it's it's almost peculiarly uh, pop culture. It's almost exclusively 1960s, uh, and it's almost entirely British, whereas I think Brett Anderson, his influences stretch slightly further. Classical music, great literature, British and European, you know, um, and I think that that sets him apart somewhat. And I think that's what enabled him to talk about some of these things that we're hinting at. Death, suicide, sex, sexuality, gender, whatever it might be. He was able to, to write about them and think about them because he is actually a writer and a thinker. Mm, I agree. I think these things also alienated him and swayed once Britpop got going. Yeah. 
and um, as you mentioned in in his uh, his autobiography, and before he even released it, he made it quite clear that that was uh, you know that that Swade were distant or he distanced Swade quite clearly from from Britpop, and uh, I think he, I think the um, the laddishness which kind of ran through Britpop was such at odds with what they were doing, especially on the first two albums. I don't think, I don't even think in in retrospect, looking at Coming Up, for example, which was um, maybe more of a, a nod to what was going on. I still think the uh, the lyrical content and the themes he, uh, that Brett would, was dealing with and how he was writing it still set them apart. And it still showed that he was, as you say, uh, better read, um, more intellectual, looking further afield, casting his net further afield. And, um, yeah, I, I wanted to go back talking about Brett and not just what he was singing, but also the way that he sang because of this this nasal, almost whine, which was... Uh, something yeah, really, really not heard before or not even to that extent, maybe if someone had tried it before, but it was very, very iconic in that way. And I think when, um, when Bernard Butler left the band, I think that Brett's voice became the sound of suede because I think mm-hmm. before, I think before that, as we were saying, we were talking about, Bernard Butler and you said he you thought he was a genius and I totally agree and uh I think when you when you hear Bernard Butler and I'm just talking about the first two suede albums of course mm-hmm. uh, bef- before you hear Brett's voice you instinctively know where you are and who you're listening to just as in many ways Johnny Marr's work with the Smiths is the same and I think suede changed into a very different band after Bernard left Obviously, the sound changed because he wasn't the guitarist anymore. But instead of instantly recognising something because of the guitar on first listen, it then became Brett's voice that defined the band and has since, I think. I don't think that the guitar and the music since those two first albums... I mean, I'm not dissing the music. I'm not saying that the music is of any less lesser quality. But I'm saying that I think Brett's voice came to the fore and became the single most recognisable thing about Suede, whereas before the two of Suede being the voice and the guitar then changed. Uh, like I said, when with the early releases, when you heard those intros, you heard that, that guitar didn't sound like anything you'd heard before, but you knew after a while, after you'd got used to Suede and used to Bernard Butler's guitar, you knew that's where you were. And then when Brett's voice came in, it's just like, you know, game over. But I, I, th- think, I, th- I think yeah. you're, I think you're right again, Nick. I think there is definitely something in that, that argument. It's, it's interesting because, you know, there are moments when Liam Gallagher sings, you can hear that he's doing a bit of John Lennon, right, or a bit of John Lydon. You can kind of, yeah. you kind of hear who he's trying to sound like, and when. I don't know, when Martin Rossiter of Gene sings, there are occasions when you can hear him trying to do a bit of Elvis or a bit of Morrissey. Um, 
you know, and, and so on. You can go through a lot of singers like that. You know, you can hear Damon Albarn doing a bit of Ray Davies, for example, or Terry yeah. Hall occasionally. But actually, Brett's voice, whether people love it or or hate it, uh, I like you happen to love it I, I, because it, it's it's so evocative yeah. and it's so unique. He doesn't sound like somebody else, and I don't think anybody else has tried to sound like him either. No, that's true. I don't know if anyone can manage it. I mean, I suppose there must be someone somewhere, but it's so unique when he's he, when he's going on and on. Is it? Have you ever tried it that way? Have you ever tried it that way? It's like oh, plaintive, like really, like ah, it's you can feel that he means it, and you can feel like you know, if he hadn't personally experienced it, then he's obviously connected in some way to that emotional part of what he's he's singing about, and and that voice was perfectly set up for that and for those songs talking about those situations and those people and these imagined or imagined or real stories whatever he was saying pitched for that and um there are a few 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 voices where that connection is made and so perfectly and they fit so well and it's just the right way to deliver those messages and uh, yeah i agree i don't don't think anyone's done it before or since and i'm not sure that anybody could really do justice to i don't know if this has happened has anybody oh yeah morrissey of course covered um the insatiable ones uh, very early on, he did a, a, a live cover version of that. about very many other suede cover versions i'm not sure how that could work yeah yeah which again is which is which is a great testament to a band yeah. you know if, if other people would struggle you know to recreate what they had done it, it suggests something very very unique or something very specific something very genuine about a band mm. um and yeah yeah just just very I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head. When, I mean, it's a cliche, isn't it? About a, another cliche about being real, but there is something yeah. genuinely authentic. Whether or not the things Brett is singing are real experiences, or are you know vignettes or stories or um, yeah. plays in musical form, that 
you never doubt for a second the the veracity of of what it is that that Brett is feeling. That there is yeah. something real uh, there, and I think that stretches on throughout the the, the catalogue. What what about if we go back to the album? Yeah. Again, like, are there are there songs? Are there particular songs? that really stand out. I know you're a big fan of Metal Mickey. We've discussed that already. I yeah. really adore. There are two songs that I really, really love on that album. Maybe three. I'm going to pick three, actually. I'm going to take Pantomime Horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to take The Next Life. Yeah. And I'm going to take um, Animal Lover. And I think Animal Lover just for the intro, to be honest with you. <coughs> Um, I mean, I love the whole song, but that intro is just phenomenal for me. But the next life in Pantomime Horse, there was something so uh, melancholic, um, so deep, so rich, so fragile, so tender, so beautiful about those songs. I can remember very clearly where I was the first time I listened to the album. I was in my then girlfriend's, my first real girlfriend, I guess, the sitting room of her parents' house in this miserable little town that we talked about uh, last time round mm-hmm. and we had the, the record on and we sat on the sofa uh, in each other's space but certainly with the with the the inner sleeve in our hands with the lyrics on it and pouring over it and I can remember hearing Pantomime Horse at the end of side one and having a real reaction to it you know feeling tingles feeling tears welling up and not really being sure why um, you know, it it didn't it didn't thrill me in the same way that Animal Lover did, or or make me feel quite as naughty as Animal Nitrate did. But <laughs> it, it had a profi- profound connection with me. And then that beautiful little full stop, the next life. I just I just think that's perfect. It's, it's the perfect way to end an album. Yeah. What about you? What are the songs that stand out for you? Uh, yeah. Well, obviously because it was the first one which came to me. Or I came to. Uh, middle Mickey just because of that super glam it's like whoa okay but um i'm with you with the uh with pantomime horse i think that is a great song i really i, I even now it's um it stands out for me as like one of one of their best i think I'm a, I'm a big fan of sleeping pills as well and just the um the just the words of that and just the pace of it and I don't know. I don't know. The, the slower ones as well. They have a real, real emotional depth. And I think at that time when you're, I think in '92, I'm gonna give away how old I am. Well, it's not such a <laughs> but I mean, I, I was, I was pretty young. Like '92, what was that? 18, 19. Yeah. There's, there's a lot emotionally, and there, you still have a lot of living to do and understanding of life to do then. And you listen to some of the stuff. 
that um, Brett's coming out with in these songs and so young as well you know that's another one for me which I think is great and um, yeah the Drowners I don't know I can't it's I was listening to the album the other day and I was wondering which ones I would pick out and it's really hard for me Metal Mickey because of the the beefiness of it something like pantomime horse and sleeping pills because listening to them actually made a story like a, a cinematic story run in my head while listening to it because it, following the lyrics so clearly and then maybe so young as well so maybe at those four with maybe the drowners coming in as a, a close fifth uh, so I, th- I think i think between us we've picked every song on the album apart from moving yeah, I think, well, that's fair enough, but it's a great album. <laughs> it's, 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 that's interesting. I mean, yeah. they, they, there you go. They, there, is the, there is the proof of how magnificent a piece of work this eponymous album from Suede is, that yeah. you're asked to pick out the songs that you know really stand out for you. I, I like that we both picked Pantomime Horse. I mean, for, for me, that, that business of you know being carved from the wreckage one day and that, oh, yeah. that one line, this is what I get uh, for being that way. Yeah, and that, that that has come to me time and time again. You know, at that oh, very dark uh, moment. So we've we've talked a lot about um, the positives and the, the which uh, which brought us to Suede and to this album. Is there anything yeah. that you had a problem with, or do have a problem with about them then or the album itself? I don't think about the album, Nick. I, mm. I think any no. I, I tell you when a, when a problem arose for me, it, it didn't arise with that first album. I, I bought into that completely and absolutely, and and very much saw Suede as being a chance for me to right the terrible wrong of not being old enough to have been there for the Smiths. Mm. They were going to be my band, and then I can remember the kind of brouhaha around. Bernard leaving and I remember feeling quite annoyed, upset about that and I have a vague uh, possibly false memory of hearing the first track off of Dogman Star introducing the band and I can remember thinking, nope, that's too weird that's, <laughs> no, 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 I don't like that, that's that's not um, you know, that's not park life uh, it's, it's, it's not uh, cigarettes and alcohol, you know, Britpop had kicked in fully by that point. And so I kind of had a rejection of Suede for their, well, for the very things I've been celebrating tonight about the debut album, which is a, an irony, I guess. The peculiarness <laughs> of it, the peculiarity of, of that sound turned me off. And in fact, I didn't buy any of the, the singles from Dogman Star other than New Generation. Mm. 
which I guess is the most Brit poppy of, of any of the songs that they ever did. And I didn't actually buy Dogman Star until I think possibly after Coming Up came out. W- right. What about you? Were there things uh, that, that, that didn't sit well with you? Yeah, it was it was kind of weird. Um, I had a bit of a problem with Suede before I'd even heard the music, to be honest. I mean, I did, yeah, I, I, I mean, I didn't have a problem with the androgyny or the image or the ambiguity of their sexuality because, you know, I love Bowie, I love T-Rex and the Smiths and there was always an element there and, come on, you know, going back to the 70s, there was a lot more going on there than, you know, I didn't have a problem with any of that. But I actually thought there was, uh, I actually thought that it was pretty exciting in the context of what was happening in music at the time, what Suede were presenting themselves at. But what I did have a problem with, though, at the start of it all was, and I don't know where I got the idea from, but I thought that they were a heroin band. I assumed that I got this idea from some provocative insinuation from Brett in an interview somewhere, or from the fact that pretty much every music publication at the time was hinting at darker things concerning the yes. band, you know, without actually coming out and saying it. Now, I, all, I have a bit of an aversion to my bands getting into smack, you know. Yeah. I, I'm a kid of the 70s, but I grew up in the 80s, and you probably remember these too. The, I'm forever scarred by that countrywide campaign of graphic, shocking billboards and TV ads rolled out by Thatcher's Tories, you know, those images of the wasted, almost decomposing ghouls slouched in derelict rooms they, they really scared me as a kid and, and you know dare i say it well, i hate to say it but fair play the conservative campaign worked because i've always considered heroin to be the nastiest dirtiest most dangerous drug and i've de- detested the idea of it ever since and then, and then of course you get like zamo on grange hill which you know, shocking. <laughs> you know kids tv just say no and all this you don't have to So when I, when I wrongly assumed that Suede were into smack, they had a lot to do to convince me to go all in, despite the hype that was going around at the time. That's purely a media-constructed idea. And, uh, of course, maybe it was built up a little bit and by the band itself or by Brett in interviews, but I kind of got the ideas like, we're on, uh, I mean, I'm quite happy with my... You know, Manchester bands popping 30 E's and doing whatever. But, you know, the idea... Well, getting, it's, it's yeah. not a drug that lends itself to creativity, right? You, you mentioned you mentioned going to the, um, the early gigs on mm. that tour. Have you seen them since? And when? Yeah, I, I, and what's, I, the, I saw... what's the audience made up of? Are they are there kids? Well... There, there were younger people there, yes, yeah. people younger than me, certainly. Let, let's put it that way. Okay. Um, but I, I saw Suede when Night Thoughts came out. Was it Night right. Thoughts? It must be Night Thoughts. That was the one that had the sort of accompanying film. I'm sure that's right. Some Somebody can drop us a line on Twitter and let me know if I've got that wrong. Um, 
And so that's maybe two years ago, three years ago. I saw them at the concert hall in Glasgow. And, and what they did was they played that album from start to finish with the film. I think it's Roger Sargent that made these series of short films to accompany each song. And they kind of run together. There's a theme that runs through the whole album, of course, and 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 the, the the short films kind of match up with the content of the songs. And so the band were behind this enormous cinema screen, and they played the entire album with the film playing in front of them. And and then every now and then, the lighting would shift, and you would see the band behind the screen. Okay, that's and that's they, cool. they, they they would they would come back and forth in and out of focus behind this film it was fantastic it was like the sort of immersive art experience then they stopped so that last say an hour and 15 minutes they, they went off they came back on and they did 45 minutes to an hour of kind of classic suede anthems yeah. it was one of the finest concerts that i've ever seen they were magnificent <laughs> conversation um and and we'll we'll see what people think but once again thank you so much for for uh, talking to me tonight no it's a pleasure paul always